Amen. I invite you to take out your Bible with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Mark's Gospel. And when you turn there, uh, find chapter 15. The 15th chapter of Mark's Gospel is where we're going to be this morning. And and as you're turning, I want you to think about the significance of this day. I actually want you to think about the traditions in your family surrounding Easter. How many of you would raise your hand and say, we have at least one, maybe more than one, Easter traditions? Can I see your hand? Is there a few? All right, those of you who raise your hand, take just a few minutes, turn to the person next to you, and tell them your Easter tradition. Go ahead, tell them, tell them the tradition that you have on this day or growing up. <laughs> All right. Someone want to shout out the most unique Easter tradition that you heard? Most unique? All right. What was the most common that you think you heard? Do what? Easter eggs. eggs. How many of you enjoy hunting some Easter eggs? How many of you better like what's inside of them? How many of you still get Easter baskets? Came in last night and Jessica's parents are up this weekend. She said, I gave you an Easter bag. It's not a basket, but it's a bag. It's all the same because what's inside is just as good, right? And, uh, you know, there are many traditions that we have taken from the events of the Holy Week. In fact, the events of the Holy Week, in some part, were also a tradition. Not in the way that we would think about it. Not in the way that you and I probably initially would think about it. But Christians around the globe this morning, and from yesterday into the rest of today, have been celebrating the event of the resurrection. They are recognizing and reflecting on the Holy Week. And as the liturgical calendar for for Christendom begins on Palm Sunday, as it begins with um, uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and as it continues to today being Easter, that whole week in the Passion narrative, it's important because it commemorates the, the Passion and the death of Jesus Christ, but it also celebrates His triumphal and victorious resurrection over sin and death. You see, Jesus had spent a number of years in his public ministry. The Bible tells us from his baptism forward, Jesus takes on this public ministry where he is teaching and proclaiming. Mark's gospel that we turn to this morning in chapter 1 begins by Jesus proclaiming something. Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And during that season of Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus did a number of things. He taught a lot about who God was, who he is, who the kingdom of heaven is, and what it is like. Jesus taught us uh, over God's power. He displayed God's power over demonic forces. Jesus healed many diseases. In fact, Jesus, during his public ministry, even raised the dead. And it was during that time that Jesus spent with his 12. He spent with his apostles, the ones that he had chosen. And in in all of those days and, and weeks and months he had spent with the 12 disciples and doing all of those things, all of that was calculated. Because all of that was going to culminate in the events of the Holy Week. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the final Passover week, he comes, as we looked at last week, he comes riding on a donkey. He 
is not coming as a conquering king. He is coming as a humble servant, one who has come to bring peace. And the events of the Holy Week unfold for us as on Monday, Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. He comes back to the temple on Tuesday. He spends much of Tuesday and Wednesday teaching on Wednesday, we know that, that Judas Iscariot had, had, had left from the, 11, the other 11 and had gone to the religious leaders and for 30 pieces of silver betrays Christ. All week long, Jesus is in this heightened conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even some of the Herodians, so that on Wednesday evening, Jesus finally pulls himself out of the city of Jerusalem. He takes his disciples up there to the garden uh, near the Mount of Olives, and he gives them what we refer to as the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is going to tell them about the end of the age and about his second coming. On Thursday, Jesus goes back with his disciples and he begins to make preparations for the Passover feast. And his disciples are busy that day as they're going and getting things for dinner and getting everything prepared. And they gather that evening on Thursday in an upper room. There's no one really there that we're aware of other than Jesus and the twelve. And they partake of what we talked about last week, that pre-Passover meal. And at midnight, Jesus leaves. In fact, actually, before Jesus leaves, we're told that Judas Iscariot had gotten up and left. And Jesus now with the eleven goes. It's midnight. And he goes to a very familiar place. He goes to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he begins to pray. And he begins to pour out his heart. And in many ways, he is preparing his heart. For death, he's preparing his heart for what he knows would soon take place. The Bible says in the Gospels that there came a point in Jesus' ministry where he began to set his face toward Jerusalem. It was like he was resolute to what he was uh, sent to do. And Jesus, as he is knowing that he is going to face the cross, he arrives there in the garden and he is praying with his disciples. You remember, they were a great prayer team because they kept falling asleep. But Jesus is enduring. The Bible says he's enduring prayer to the point of shedding blood. And it was in the middle of the night that we're told that Judas arrives. And he comes with this band of religious leaders. He comes with this cohort of Roman soldiers, maybe upwards of five, six hundred soldiers, to arrest Christ. And they take him captive. The disciples flee. And Jesus is taken in the middle of the night to a trial, which is really no more than a mock trial. And Jesus goes, and he is taken really that evening through a number of different trials, but they're all just made up on Trump charges. None of it's on real evidence. And at first, Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest. So he goes to Ananias' house and Caiaphas' house, and there they accuse Jesus of blasphemy. You remember what they said? They accuse Jesus of being the Christ, uh, the Son of God. They, they accuse him of blasphemy. And all night long, Jesus is brought all of these false charges. Jesus is beaten until about five in the morning, right before daybreak. And we're told that the religious leaders take Jesus to the place of trial. They take him to the judgment hall, and they have determined by now that Jesus must die. He must. And they take him there to this judgment hall where Pilate is at because the Jews did not have the right, these religious leaders did not have the right to execution. Remember, Israel is being occupied by the Roman government. Rome is in charge, not the religious leaders. 
And so they take Jesus to Pilate, and then you remember this whole ordeal in the morning of, of Friday takes place where Jesus is literally bounced back and forth from Pilate to Herod and back to Pilate again. And that's actually where we pick up in Mark's gospel in chapter 15 this morning. Jesus has gone through all of those things, and he finds himself now back to Pilate. And the Bible says, if you notice verse 1 of chapter 15, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Now, I want you just a moment. We, we often think about so many events in the Holy Week, but it's easy to sometimes skip over characters in the narrative. And this morning, we're going to look at two individuals in the narrative, which probably aren't individuals that we seem to really focus on during the Holy Week and all that Jesus endured for us. But I want you first and foremost this morning to put yourself in the sandals of a guy by the name of Pilate. Pilate is a... He is the leader there for Rome in Israel. He is a governor appointed by Rome to this occupied nation so that somehow he might keep the peace for the Roman government. He really only has one job, and that is to keep his boss happy. And his boss just happens to be an emperor by the name of Sirius, uh, Caesar, T Tiberius Caesar. And so here is Pilate, and Pilate was already in a position when Jesus comes to him, and he is not already in a good light. Uh, Pilate had, had made some mistakes prior to Jesus being brought before him, and, 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 and as we could say, Pilate's leadership there in Israel was on thin ice. Um, we, we, we discover from history that there had been a shortfall in the budget, and so Pilate goes and he plunders the temple treasury for funds. Uh, that's not going to go over well with the Jewish leaders. In that, the Jews had an uprising. They began to riot over what was happening. Pilate, through his leadership, the Romans killed people in the uprising. And so now Pilate is viewed as the enemy of the people. Not to mention... He was somebody who set up all of these idols in his house and did all of these things. And the Jewish leaders, once again, were quite uh, enraged by that, so much so that they appealed to Caesar. And so Caesar asked Pilate to remove his idols. And to, you know, so he's, I mean, can you, you imagine Pilate's in this difficult position where he's trying to keep peace in, in a government of, of which he is occupying under the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it certainly wasn't peaceful. And there's, there's Pilate trying to keep peace with these people. And so it's in the middle of all of those things that these Jewish leaders bring Jesus to Pilate for Pilate to deal with it. I think that's part of the reason Pilate passed him off to Herod. Pilate was hopeful that Herod would deal with what seemed like the problem and Pilate wouldn't have to deal with it. But notice Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate. And Pilate really in a lot of ways already has some strikes against him. I mean he can't afford to go wrong again. And so you feel the pressure. I just want you to understand, Pilate is in a place where he feels the pressure to do what he thinks is right by the people. And notice, beginning in verse 2, notice what we discover Pilate does. Pilate asks Jesus a question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate wants to know. There's this charge against Jesus. And Pilate wants to ask for himself. 
Are you the king of the Jews? Notice what Jesus says. You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? I mean, you need the exasperation in time. I mean, it's as if Pilate is in some ways trying to help Jesus here, but he's just wanting Jesus to come to his own defense. He wants Jesus to take up for himself so that Pilate has a reason and a way to, to dismiss these charges. But notice the Bible says, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you in verse 4. Notice verse 5. But Jesus made no answer further so that Pilate was amazed. Actually, John's gospel tells us that at this moment, Pilate looked at Jesus and he asked, he told Jesus, he says, do you not realize that I have the power to set you free or the power to crucify you? I mean, Pilate was going to have to make this decision regarding what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we know from Mark's gospel, we know it for the other three gospels, that in every occasion where Pilate is mentioned, we, we, we understand that Pilate found Jesus to be innocent. In fact, Pilate found that Jesus was not uh, convicted of crimes. Jesus had, had done nothing wrong. And, and all of these supposed crimes that had been laid before him were certainly not offenses that would have been punishable by the Roman Empire. And so in Pilate's understanding, Jesus is not worthy of death. Jesus had done nothing wrong. Jesus, in fact, was innocent. John's Gospel says, Pilate said three times, I find him not guilty. And so as Pilate then begins to consider his next course of action, what will he do with Jesus? He remembers the Roman tradition. He remembers what the Romans did during the day of Passover. And that was this tradition that in first century, Rome had a custom that on the day of Passover, they would release a prisoner to the people. It was kind of as if they were trying to make a good face to the people in whom they were occupying. And so hopefully any of the rebellion or any of the riots that had come up, they would, they would give back uh, a prisoner of the people's choosing. It was kind of an act of good grace. And, and Pilate remembers this. And so he's going to let the people decide. He's going to allow a show of goodwill and allow the people to make the decision. He sees it as an opportunity to free Jesus. I believe Pilate saw it as an opportunity to release Jesus from the charges. And at the same time, he could keep face with the people. And in Matthew's gospel, just listen to what the Bible says. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. In verse 17, Pilate, when the crowd had gathered, asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? If you look down at your Bible in verse 10 of where we've turned to this morning, you can see that as well. He says in verse 10, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. So you see, you, you can really understand what's happening in the narrative. Pilate understands what's really going on here. He, he understands that it is not Jesus and his fault. It is not Jesus and what he had done. It was the religious leaders. And Pilate was able to see through things and understand it was because of the religious leaders and their envy for Jesus is why they had done everything that they had done. 
And so Pilate here, he's going to offer the people to make a choice. He's, he's giving them an ultimatum. He's giving them a choice between Jesus the Messiah and Jesus Barabbas. And, and, and Pilate pretty much thinks the answer is pretty easy. Uh, he, he, he Actually, I think he pretty much knows, he thinks he knows what the people are going to choose. Because who, here in the story, we, 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 we have two characters, right? Well, three characters, but, but two by the same name. Jesus and Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. And one is a rightful prisoner. One, the Bible calls him a robber, a rebel rouser. He is a traitor. He is a criminal and a crook. He is an insurrectionist against the Roman government. He is a lawbreaker. And the Bible says he is a notorious prisoner. He has been imprisoned for his crimes against Rome. He is waiting execution to die by crucifixion. That is the one, Jesus Barabbas. And then we look across the stage there where Pilate's seated and we see another. And it is Jesus the Messiah. And we ask the question, what has he done? This one who is full of grace and truth. This one who serves and loves. This one who heals and restores. This one who does not condemn but sets free. And both of these Jesuses are set out before the people to make a choice. I love what Tim Keller says. He describes it this way. One of the rulers... One rules by taking the lives of others. The other rules by giving his own life. One wants to overthrow the king and the other is the rightful king of the people. One is guilty and will be set free. The other is innocent who is about to be killed. The real son of the father who is innocent will go to his death. They freed the wrong son. So Pilate says, he looks at the people and he says, Who do you want? Who do you want? And I think in Pilate's mind, he's seeing the comparison between somebody like Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth. And Pilate's saying, of course they're going to pick Jesus. Who wants Barabbas back? And in the narrative, we're not totally sure what takes place, but Pilate is interrupted by something and it gives time for the chief priest and the elders to rouse the people. And he he expects them to say, Jesus of Nazareth. But instead, the multitude of the crowd began to chant, give us Barabbas. Do they really want Barabbas to go free? I mean, do you think they really want Barabbas back? (laughs) Out of all the crimes that he had done, the murders he had committed, I mean, do you think the Jewish people want him back? So Pilate, he senses this shift in the crowd. He doesn't actually kind of understand it, I think. And in verse 12, notice in your Bible, Pilate said to them again, then what shall I do with the man, the king of the Jews? So you want Barabbas back, okay, but then what shall I do with Jesus? And in verse 13, they cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. And you're Pilate. And Pilate says to the people in verse 13, why? You you see the way he's pleading, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate, notice verse 15, Pilate wishing 
to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. In that moment, the innocent becomes guilty and the guilty goes free. You know, I've often wondered, and I've thought about this week some more, what was Barabbas thinking? We're not told of anything, he says. It actually almost seems like there's no conscience in Barabbas. His chains fell off. He's a free man. He's welcomed by the crowd. And in just a few moments, what he will see is a man carry the cross that he should have carried. We read in verse 15, Pilate scourged Jesus. The religious leaders scourged Jesus and delivered him to be crucified. You say, man, what a tragedy. An innocent man is condemned. And a guilty man is pardoned. But Jesus says, he told his followers in John 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. And I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it back up again. And that's what he did. <laughs> that's what he did. That's what the resurrection is all about, that Jesus rose again, that no man takes his life from him, but he lays it down willingly of his own accord. And when we look at this story, when we look at Mark 15 and other places in the Gospels where we see this comparison between Jesus and Barabbas, what we discover is when we look at the, the stage of all of that and we see Barabbas there in his, in his sin and his guilt and his shame and we see him there being condemned for crimes that he committed, what we see and what we should see in the story is that you and I stand alongside Barabbas. In actual fact, Barabbas is a picture of you and I in the story. Because all of us have sinned against God. All of us have laid and committed treason against God. All of us have sinned against the government of the kingdom of heaven. And we stand before God's judgment seat guilty. We stand before God condemned. And the sentence that Barabbas faced was the sentence that you and I face that our crimes are worthy of death. And we deserve the guilt. We deserve the punishment. We deserve the shame. We deserve the rebuke. We deserve the grave. But you know, the good news of the gospel and the good news of today is that Jesus trades place with people like Barabbas and Judas and Aaron and Chris, and Charlene. God takes your place so that the guilty can be freed and that God would be the justifier. Listen to these few verses. The Bible tells us that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
The Bible says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Jesus told His followers that because I live, you also will live. The Bible tells us, for we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once and for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I tell you, my friend, this morning, we do stand guilty before a holy and righteous God. But there is one who can take your place. And in fact, the Bible tells us that there is one who has taken your place. And that day is Jesus takes his cross and he begins to struggle with the cross as he makes his way to Golgotha. We, 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 we see in, in that moment that the sins of the world were placed on him. The Bible tells us that as Jesus goes to the cross, he goes as that lamb, that spotless lamb who can take away the sins of the world. And the fact of the matter today is that there has been one. There is one who has taken your place. And Jesus did that. The Bible says there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It's this great exchange. It's this great exchange where, where, where you and I who were guilty and, and, and condemned before God and, and in our shame, all of that has been put on Christ and in turn, He frees us. Our chains are released. We, we, we walk as free men and women. And we are released from the debt that all of us had owed God. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. It reminds me of that song that I so deeply love to sing. Oh love that will not let me go. Oh love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. You see, the gospel says that sinful people can be released, can be freed, can be cleansed. How? Because of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. By his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And you know what? Here's the thing this morning. All of us in this room have a choice. And in fact, all of us this morning are confronted with the same choice that was in this passage. All of us have to make a choice just as Pilate made that day. As he asked the question then, what shall I do with Jesus? What shall I do with Jesus? And the question is for you this morning, what will you do with Jesus? In fact, how will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? And the fact is that day, as we think about all that took place, the crowd wasn't really choosing Barabbas. They were more, in fact, rejecting Jesus. And there are a lot of people that do that today. There are a lot of people that have turned their back against God. There are a lot of people that have turned away from God. And sometimes we, we, we go through painful moments in life. Some of us go through deep hurt. And, and, and some of us go through things in life that we struggle to understand. And rather than turning to God, some of us turn and blame God. But I wonder this morning if you would really see who you are. And would you see yourself on that stage with Barabbas condemned? 
And would you also then see that there is one who will take your place and has and wants for you to experience life. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. If you're not following the Lord with your life, my friend, you're not experiencing an abundant life. And you probably experience a painful life, a, a, a challenging life, a life that doesn't make sense to you. But Jesus wants you to experience an abundant life. He wants you to experience something that you can't get from within yourself, but something that can only come as his gift to you. And so I want to ask you that question as Pilate was asked that question, and that is this. What will I do then with Jesus? I wonder this morning, would you receive the gift of grace that is in Jesus Christ? Would you confess your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone to save you? And, 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 and would you do that sincerely and would you follow him with your life? Because he's worthy of it. You know, we, we end the story and you know what we discover? We're never told what Barabbas does. In fact, in the book of Acts and other places, his name is never mentioned. It would seem as if Barabbas, having been set free by Christ, in turn rejected him. And there are many in this world who are doing the same thing today. But there's something greater for those who know Christ. Because the Bible says, because he lives we'll live again. There's an eternal hope that comes from believing in Christ Jesus. There's an eternal hope and forgiveness and cleansing that can be yours. And we this morning as a church would love for that to be something you'd receive. Would you bow your head with me this morning? I'm just going to give a personal private invitation right there where you're seated. You may have come today for whatever reason. But as you were here this morning, God by His Spirit has challenged your heart about who is Jesus. And I wonder this morning, would you simply open up your heart and receive Him? Would you invite Jesus Christ to come into your life? Would you, my friend, this morning turn from your sins, confess your sins, and receive what Jesus has done for you? You know, all of us, we, we look to the cross this morning on the platform and we're reminded that, 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 that the foot of, at the foot of the cross, everything's equal. We don't compare ourselves with one another. We don't look at our life based off of where we have been. You see, Jesus looks at where you are right now and whether or not you've received him and whether or not you've turned to him for saving faith. And this morning, we want to invite you to do that right there in your seat. You could do it right where you're seated. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. You're welcome to come down here and someone would gladly take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures even more what it means to be a Christian. Today, the opportunity is there for you to receive Christ. The question is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? Father, I pray for each person in this room this morning. I thank you for just this message of what you have done for us. 
In fact, God, we are all undeserving and you are worthy. And yet, and yet, Lord, in your love, you redeemed us. And yet in your love, Lord, you have given us eternal life for the power of defeating death and hell. And God, I pray that each person in this room this morning would respond personally to who you are in their life. Lord, don't let them go out of this room, this building today with questions of whether or not they can know you. But I pray that they would experience that this morning. Father, we thank you this morning for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for our hope. And we thank you, Lord, for cleansing, forgiving, renewing. Lord, we thank you that by your forgiveness, we also forgive one another as you command us to do it. Because, Lord, we're all debtors to mercy. We're all debtors to mercy. Father, we thank you and we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen.